I'm going to jump right into Nehemiah chapter 4. And how many of you guys know that, like my friend Cameron, whose wife just passed, like life happens and trouble happens for all of us, doesn't it? And it seems to come unexpectedly. Job says, I mean, Job, if anybody knows about trouble, Job did. And he says in Job 14.1, man that is born of a woman, so I think that's most of us, is of few days and already full of trouble. And in this text, we see that not only are God's people not exempt from trouble, but actually because they're God's people, sometimes it seems like the trouble's even harder. You know, there's all these promises that God gives, promise of resurrection, promise that all things will work together for the good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. We love the promises of God, right? But there's this promise that we don't talk about a lot that Jesus says, and He promises that if we follow Him, we will be persecuted. We will face trouble and trial. So it's so important that we know how to deal with struggles when they come. Because we're going to face them a lot as Christ followers and just as people here on this earth. And there is that hope. One day it won't always be like this. We have resurrection hope. There's this hope that everything that's bad will work together for good. But in the meantime, there's a lot of trouble. So how do we walk with God through trouble? And I want to start out by saying this, that if you can trust God, as you walk through struggles, you will experience life and joy and hope. But if not, you will experience either apathy, you check out, or anxiety, because it's too much to bear. But if you will trust God, you won't miss out on the life that he has for you. And this story, I love this story because it really opens us up to the struggle the Israelites are facing. And in this chapter particularly, we see them model what it looks like to walk with God through suffering. You guys ready for that? I need this. I need this. We've gone through trouble here. The last like four or five months, this church has been through it. A lot of different people losing jobs, struggling with finances, all kinds of things happening. Coming out of the woodwork, like any one thing that could really be a difficult time for a church community, it's like... All of them hit boom, 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 boom at the same time. And it's been difficult. So how do we learn to walk with God through tough times? And there's three movements in this story we're going to get into. And maybe you'll see them as we read through the Scripture. And that is God's calling us to acknowledge our struggles, to look around, to actually see what's going on, to proclaim His sovereignty, to look up, and to see, to see God and His love and His sovereign plan for us. And then to move forward, to look forward and, and move toward the plan that he has for us. And that's what we're going to walk through today. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 4. And we have it up here as well. Um, but if you have your Bibles or uh, smartphones, feel free to jump in. Nehemiah 4. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will, will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn stones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, 
He said, yes, what, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. And Nehemiah prays, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. He's saying, let them experience what we're going through right now. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And then he continues the narrative. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion to it. Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And in Judah it was said that the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop this work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Get out of there, guys. It's hopeless. Give up. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. This is like a scene out of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where they're like gathering the peasants into an army. And I looked down and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, and bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on um, the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. They're building all along this great wall, all the way around the city of Jerusalem. It's huge. So they're spread out. And he says, so we're separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will what? Fight. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each slept with his weapon at his right hand. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would give us a vision for you that is more compelling than anything else, that you would help pull our eyes off of the most disastrous situations and struggles that we're facing, 
put our eyes on you and motivate our hearts to hope in you, to trust in you, God. Have your way in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So walking with God through life's struggles. The first thing we have to do is acknowledge our struggles. Look around, take inventory. I want you to think for a second. In your life recently, maybe you're going through something even right now. What are some of the struggles that you're facing right now? I just want you to think about it. Or maybe you look around and your friends are really struggling with some things. Here's a question I have for you. What are some of the ways we respond to struggle? What are some of the ways we respond to struggle? Feel free to jump out there. We run from it. We run from it. Yeah, we retreat. Yeah, get out of there. Yeah. What else? We get mean. Oh, yeah. Frustrated, anxious, worried. I know none of you guys have been there, but Zach and I have. Anybody else? We fear the worst. A sense of dread. Hopelessness. What's going to happen? I don't know. Probably the worst thing, right? Murphy's Law. What else? Lash out at others. Oh, yeah. They're not meeting your expectations. Your expectations aren't being met anywhere. So the first person that lets you down, you're ready to pummel them, right? Yeah. Anybody else? Start to hate. We get down on ourselves. We don't just get mad at others. We get mad internally, don't we? It's great. Tons of things. Yeah, Gloria. Self-pity. Yeah. Make yourself a bowl of pout soup. Yeah. Hey, we laugh at it, but how many of us have done it? Like, honestly, that's why we laugh, right? Imagine being the people in this chapter. How exhausting. They've been led away in captivity. They've been subjugated by a foreign power. Then they come back into their, their, their city where they're supposed to have hope and joy, but the walls are broken down. They don't have any defense. They're working day and night, exhausted. Right? And it's not like they, they don't hire the contracting company to come out and do it. Everybody, the dads and the daughters working side by side, building the wall up. It's exhausting. And then, to add insult to injury, right, here comes Sanballat and Tobiah ready to destroy them, attacking them. And now I've got to work twice as hard, right? Now we're, we've got half the people because these other people are over here holding swords and spears. And I like what John said the other night. He said, they must have felt so ashamed. We went through this in our gospel community the other night. He said, must have felt so ashamed. We are God's chosen people, allegedly. But here we are rebuilding this wall and my grandpa is carrying a sword we are just that busted right now, and everyone is laughing at us. Allegedly. Isn't this supposed to be easier? I mean, why is it this hard? Not only do we have to rebuild, but we are exhausted and sleeping in our clothes with our sword by our side. That would be a horrible thing to just roll over on in the middle of the night. How much longer do we have to do this? God, what are you up to? I wanted to see the restoration of Jerusalem, but I didn't sign up for, like, dying in the process. Have you ever felt like that? 
I like what Teresa said. said, Life is so hard sometimes. And this passage is in the moment of the suckiness. <laughs> they saw me. We were, we were having this discussion. I was taking notes. So I told them, you guys might be on the screen. You never know. Life happens. Struggles come. How do we respond? Well, we talked about that. Sometimes we run. Sometimes we run to other things besides God. To numb the pain, to self-medicate. Right? Sometimes we hide. We shut down. We get overwhelmed. We complain. We stress. But in this passage, we see Nehemiah and the Israelites take this honest assessment of the struggle they are in so they can decide how to proceed. I like the way one person said it. Guys, when you're going through hell, don't stop. Right? Keep going. Or Teresa said another great quote. A great quote. quote I can't talk. She said, we aren't living courageously if we don't ever face adversity. And when we look at this text, we realize something. They felt like quitting. You can't blame them. You can't blame them. Like, read this, verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection. But the people in Judah, the, the people that he's leading are saying, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We'll not be able to rebuild the wall. And the Jews are coming from all over in the other cities and saying, guys, get out of there. You must return to us. Thanks for the encouragement, right? You got to love it when people tell us to give up. You guys remember that guy who gave up? Oh, that's right. Nobody does, right? Nobody remembers. I love Thomas Edison says this. Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. And they didn't give up. But why? Why didn't they give up? Well, I think in this verse here, we see something that motivates them. In this, this brave heart speech that Nehemiah gives before they go into battle, he says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. So he's saying, guys, do you own this? Is this, is this just my project? Do you guys want to be here? Is this our city? Are we building this together? Fight for your families. Fight for your kids. Fight for your homes. But that's not all he says. He also says what? Remember the Lord your God who is great and awesome. And I know that doesn't quite pack the punch it should because we all have Twitter and text messages and like that delicious plate that I had was great. It was great. And that quote you posted was awesome. And language is not quite what it was at one point, right? When something that was great was like so big you couldn't imagine how big it was. It was grand. It was just beyond the imagination. Something was awesome like you stood in awe, like, oh, you know, like just <laughs> jaw-dropping. <laughs> yeah, yummy. So God is great and awesome. And it's not just like, yeah, God's great. And he's awesome. He's pretty cool. You know, it's, oh, man, you're, this is amazing. He's proclaiming that God is in control. That God is sovereign. That God is bigger than this problem. So they look around at the, the worst that's, that's coming up, the worst struggles that they're facing. They take an assessment. What do we have to do? But they don't just stop there and look around them, right? What else do they do? They look up. They look to their God. 
And I, I love the way Emily said it. She said, in verse 10, the task looked impossible and everyone was tired and done. But in verse 14, Nehemiah tells him not to be afraid, but to remember the Lord, your God, who is great and awesome. Life gets you tired and worn out, but God knows. Remember him. Guys, we can't get stuck just dwelling on the struggles and the negativity of life. We have to lift our eyes and see God in his sovereignty. But we don't always look to God as our solution, do we? Sometimes we look to other things. Sometimes we put our hope in other things. What are some of the other things that we put our hope in during times of struggle? Other people, yeah? Yeah, if only Superman was here, he would save me. Our career, yeah? Either the success of the career, because then I can get the job I want, or, or the money of the career to give me security and provide for me. We look to those things. Yeah, what else do we look to? What's that? Our own ability to figure it out. Our own sense of control. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Vices like alcohol and drugs. Is that you, God? <laughs> Silence that phone. Yes. Family. Yeah. We end up putting the weight of our expectation and hope onto things that weren't really created to bear it, were they? If this person would just do this, if this situation would just work out, then everything would be... You guys, you tracking? Yeah. But none of those things, as great and awesome as they are, are sovereign or have control over our struggles, do they? God is sovereign. And here's the interesting thing. Many of us have different views of God's sovereignty. We have different ideas of how large and in charge God is. And those views greatly affect how we walk through struggle. So I really want to camp out here for a minute today because I think this is so important. The text really highlights the important relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I like verse 9. We prayed to God and we posted a guard. Hmm. There's this story in Isaiah about King Hezekiah. Really interesting place where King Hezekiah is wrapping up his life. He's ready to die. And he prays to God and asks for, for more time. I'm not ready to die yet. And God comes and speaks to him through the prophet Isaiah and says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. This is in Isaiah 38. You're going to get better, and I'll give you 15 more years. Then Isaiah adds this. Create a hot plaster made of figs and put it on the boil, and you will get better. See that? I prayed. I asked God. God spoke. He said, you're going to get better. Here's the medicine. Right? God is going to rebuild the wall. Here's your hammer. Right? God is going to fight for us. Pick up your sword. Right? God is going to defend our cause. We need to place a guard. It's interesting. And I think, you know, this whole idea of, through the Bible, we have this emphasis on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They go together, as my wife says, like peanut butter and jelly. We have this tendency to say, but, but, but look, like if, if God is in control, do we really need to place a guard? Like if you put a guard there, are you really trusting God's in control? Well, it's both. It's both. Uh, one of the best examples I can think of this is Acts 27. Paul 
He's in this storm at sea. He's a prisoner on the ship. The storm is, is tearing the boat apart. Grown men, sailors that have been doing this their whole life are weeping like babies. They're freaked out. It's a horrible storm. And this angel appears, Acts 27, verse 22. This angel appears, and the angel tells Paul, even though the boat will be lost, nobody will die. Now that's some awesome assurance. If you're in the middle of a storm, and it seems like all hope is lost, and an angel of God appears to you and says, don't worry, the boat will be lost, but everyone will live. Okay, cool. I know it's scary. It's pretty freaky, but I think God's in control of this. But then if you go on down to verse 31, Paul sees these sailors freaking out, and they're heading out for this lifeboat. And Paul says to the captain of the ship, don't let them get on the lifeboat. If they do, we will all perish. What? Wait a second. Like, didn't God just say that nobody's going to die? I'm confused. Like, why is Paul freaking out here? Why didn't he say, well, God said we're not going to die. It doesn't matter what we do. You know, go snorkeling. Have fun. Jump in the water. Grab the lifeboat. It doesn't matter. Either way, because God is going to save us all. What's going on here? What's going on here? I, um, both D.A. Carson, who wrote an amazing book on God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and J.I. Packer, who wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, they discussed this idea at length. And I know it's a really kind of a heady idea, but don't worry, we're going to get to the heart of it here in a second, so just track with me. And they say that this really comes together at the cross. If you look at Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching the first sermon since the crucifixion. And he gets up in Acts chapter 2 in front of this crowd who's seeing all these, like, drunk-looking people wandering to the streets, spinning around, speaking other languages with fire on their head, and they're like, what can these things mean? You know, it's amazing. And Peter stands up to kind of give him an explanation. And in Acts 2.23, he says this, This Jesus was delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him with hands of wicked men. So he says, on one hand, it was absolutely necessary and part of God's plan that Jesus Christ was going to die. But on the other hand, at the same time, those of you who crucified him, you are utterly responsible for what you did. What you did mattered. What you do matters. You're responsible for it. And what this means is that no matter how bad things get, on one hand, God is completely in charge Yet on the other hand, what you do matters. And I know that intellectually that's like a paradox. It's one of those things that in our finite human brains that aren't infinite like God's, it's kind of hard for us to grasp the depth of that. It's a, it's a, it's a paradox that maybe we struggle with in theory, but, but when it gets down to the practical ground of everyday life, this is going to blow your mind, okay? Because if you don't get this, you're either going to experience apathy when struggles come, or you're going to experience anxiety. You're either going to stop caring, or you're going to care too much. You're going to emotionally detach, or you're going to freak out and bear the burden of the struggle. So one way of looking at God's sovereignty is this. We overemphasize our role. We overemphasize it. We place an incredible amount of weight on ourselves to be in control We work our fingers to the bone to get the outcome we want. We may even resort to manipulation and telling this person this thing to get this way so we can get the outcome that we want. And we stress and we fatigue and 
We feel anxious and we feel fearful. Anybody been there? Yet on the other side of it, instead of overemphasizing our role, sometimes we underemphasize our role. And we view our actions as, as, you know, in our words, as meaningless. It doesn't matter what we do. God's going to do whatever he wants. What I do doesn't even matter. Who cares? Because God's just going to do what he wants anyway. And we have this really, like, um, what's the right word here? This, this view of God's sovereignty that's fatalistic. It's like, no matter what happens, God's just going to do it anyway. And, and so what we end up doing is we, we become apathetic. We become lethargic. We lose our passion, and we miss out on life. But if you can catch this vision of God's sovereignty— you can catch the right view of your role in this story that Scripture says what you do actually matters. What you do counts. You are responsible. And yet at the same time, you can't completely screw up because God is in control. God is sovereign. If you catch this, it will motivate your life. It will draw you closer to God in times of struggle. It will save you from anxiety and crushing yourself on one hand, and it will save you from apathy and ruining yourself on the other. You'll be free to really live life. It'll, it'll motivate your life. And I, I think one of the best ways to sum it up is this. A friend, in, a friend of mine, not in this church recently, um, lost his job, and we were talking about um, him job, job hunting. He's like, yeah, but like God's in control, so it's just going to kind of you know, happen however it happens anyway, right? And I said, well, yeah, but, like, don't you need to go out and look for a job, though? Huh. I mean, are magic checks just going to appear in the mail, you know, sit back in your client. Is that what's going to happen? I said, no, 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 I need to work on getting a job, too. But just kind of, you know, like, it feels meaningless, but if I really plug in, then I feel all stressed out about it. i got to figure it all out and everything. And, and it was like in this moment the Holy Spirit really spoke to me. I was like, no, here's the deal. When we trust in God's sovereignty— when we really believe he's in control, that he has a plan, it frees our hearts from worry. It frees our hearts from the burden of anxiety and stress and fear and trying to make things happen. And out of that, out of that rest in the gospel, out of that trust in God's sovereignty, we move out. And you, you build a good resume. And you send it out. And you pound the pavement. And you take it into all the, all the places you can. And you look for a job. Right? So it's this. God is going to give you a job. God is going to provide for you, yet he's calling you to participate in his plan. He's calling you to get your hands dirty, calling you to get your feet wet. And I, I like, uh, do you see how freeing that is, by the way? Do you see how liberating that is for your heart to rest in God's control and work from a place of rest? One, one of my uh, friends, Jeff Vanderstelt, says it this way. He says that God created the whole world in six days. On the seventh day, he told us to rest. So our first day of life was resting in God's finished work. And then out of that first day, then he told us to go out and name the animals and, and all that. So, so even your work is supposed to be from a place of rest. And Gina said it this way on, on she's not here, but she said it. Gina's one of our neighbors that's been coming on, on our Wednesday night Bible study. She said, it's like God shows up in the dedication of the people who are guarding the wall. It's like she's getting it. She's getting it. That's why the scripture is filled like with these things. Like, for instance, evangelism. Jesus tells the disciples, go into the whole world, preach the gospel. Get out there. Get people to see me, to glorify me and be saved. And I know 
like, sometimes we're like, yeah, but Scripture also says nobody comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Like, isn't God the one who elects and predestines and calls people to himself? So why does it matter what I do? You ever gotten to that quandary and wondered about that whole thing? Yeah. Why does it matter? It's because we have a role to play. How can anyone believe if they don't hear? And how can they hear unless someone is proclaiming the truth? Or your own sanctification, your own growth in Christ and a Christian maturity. The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Well, salvation is yours, but you've got to work at it. You're called to put your hands to it, to make it your focus. Don't be lazy and just rest in God's sovereignty and say, well, he's going to do what he does in my heart, so I'm just going to keep living life as I always have. That's not what he calls us to do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. So we can't claim that we saved ourselves. It wasn't our work. So that no one may boast. And then I love the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yeah, you're not saved by your works, but you're saved for works. You're saved to continue to work out your salvation. Are you guys tracking? Like New City Church, we look around today, right? This is our church, and God is building his church. Yet like Nehemiah, he's calling us to pray and engage and pick up a hammer so that he can build the church and pick up a sword so that he can fight for the church, right? That is what God is calling us to do. And when you catch this gospel-centered view of God's sovereignty, your heart will be motivated from a place of rest. Your life will be energized and you'll be free to move forward in faith. And that's, that's the last point. Number three, move forward in faith. The shortest point here. I love this verse. It says, they joined the wall together up to half its height because the people had a mind to work. See, when we see the struggles going on around us, we see the challenges around us, and then we get our eyes off of that, and we look up, and we see our God as sovereign and in control. It will motivate our hearts to move forward in faith and boldness, and it will give us a mind to work. Even if that means picking up swords in one hand and hammers in the other. Even if that means picking up an extra shift when you're exhausted and you feel like, like the song said, when I'm burnt out like an ember, right? And I can barely stand. Lord, help me to remember who I am in yours. Why? Because here's the deal. We see the need. Do you guys see the needs around you in your life? We need to be aware of the needs around us in our lives and in the lives of others. And when we see our God and we've submitted to his sovereignty and we've trusted him, but we're working out of what we feel his plan is for our lives, what happens? By the end of this chapter, look at what happens. Even with insurmountable odds, even with the Israelites having years of pain and disappointment, with no walls or protection, everyone around them either mocking them or telling them to quit, give up, get out of there, we find them working harder than ever, with no hope, no apparent hope in any of the situations, no end in sight, but it's because their eyes didn't stay on the struggle. Their eyes were lifted and they saw their God. They saw the sovereignty of God and they saw his plan and it motivated their hearts to keep going forward and trusting him. And what happened? In the end of the story, we see a picture of what happened. 
God thwarted the enemy's plan. God continued to build the wall, and God fought for them. That's beautiful. How many of you want that type of outcome in the, when you experience struggles in your life? You want God to fight for you. You want God to rebuild the walls of your life. That is the life you're shaped for. That is a life of walking with God through the best times and the worst times. That's what I'm inviting you into today. And we need this. We have been through it. We talked about that as a church. Marriages, finances, ministries, our whole church. Imagine what this truth could look like if it became a reality in our lives. If we really surrendered to the sovereignty of God and let that motivate our hearts, even when we're tired and we have nothing left to give. That when struggles come, we can move forward in faith instead of freezing in apathy or laboring in anxiety because we have a sovereign God who is in control. And as, as we end, I, I love what Zach's been doing the last few weeks, so I'm just going to try to follow the pattern. Let me know if I do it well. The law says do this. If, if we end it here today, what, all we've said is this. Guys, here's what you need to do. When struggles come, do these things and it will fix it. Who's that put the weight on? Yeah, is that good news? No, we're back in the same trap we started with, right? So the law says do this, these three points. The law says, yeah, acknowledge the struggles you're going through. Look around you. The law says, yeah, look to God. He's sovereign. Look up. Trust in him. And the law says move forward in faith. Look forward. But if we end there, we haven't gotten to Christ, and we haven't gotten to the gospel. So how do we get to Christ through this passage? That's the question. How do we get to Jesus? Well, Nehemiah is great. Love this guy, but he's not the hero of the story, is he? We think of the story, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Who's the hero of the story? Yeah, Nehemiah points us to the true and better Nehemiah. How Jesus is the one who, like Nehemiah, left the comfort of the king's court, but came for his people to identify with his people in a time of suffering and build something, build his kingdom, right? So we see Jesus as the true and better Nehemiah but we see three things that Jesus does for us. Jesus went through the ultimate struggle for us. Nehemiah told people how to go through struggle. But Jesus went through our struggle for us in our place. He let trouble do its worst to him. He was mocked. He was jeered by a thousand sand ballots and Tobias. He was mocked and jeered so you would never have to be. He had his reputation dragged through the mud so that yours could be secured in heaven. Amen? And Jesus, number two, Jesus perfectly trusted God's sovereignty. And we see that like at this garden right before he goes to the cross. As he sits there weeping and sweating great drops of blood as it were, he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup, what? pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ trusted God's sovereignty perfectly in your place so that when you fail to struggle, or when you struggle and you fail to believe that God is sovereign, you fail to trust in his plan. Jesus Christ had enough faith for you. He trusted. He believed. And thirdly, Jesus moved boldly forward in faith. He placed his life into the Father's hands to exchange it for ours on the, the cross. Do you, guys, do you guys believe the gospel today? That's good news. John said it this way. One more quote from John. He said, 
I don't need to be great because God is. I, I feel like labor, my labor is giving out. My faith is dwindling. We can feel like that. We are clearly not at our best right now. More days than not, I need to hear that. I don't have to be God. I don't have to figure it all out and be in control. I don't have to check out in order to preserve my emotions and just stop caring. But I can engage because I know that God is engaged with me. I know that he has a plan that's better than mine. And so lastly, spirit-empowered obedience. As, as we kind of step forward into this and we start thinking about communion and what it means is we come down here in a couple minutes and we're going to take communion. Maybe you want to come down with your husband or wife or with your DNA group or with your gospel community and take communion and confess your areas of struggle and surrender to God's sovereignty. As we do, I want you to think about this spirit-empowered obedience in your life that's available for you. Because you are children of a sovereign God. You've been purchased by the precious blood of his son, Jesus, and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're sitting here today and you're a believer, that is your story. So we can pray passionately even though we know God is sovereign. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even though it is God who saves us from start to finish. We can share our faith even though it's God who's drawing people to himself. We can move forward in the face of opposition, even though it is God who's fighting for us. And we can rebuild this church, new city, even though it is God who's building his church. The only way we can do that is being by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So as we take communion, I want you to focus on these things. Because the Spirit opens your eyes to see our struggles, we are free to honestly acknowledge our struggles, to repent, to acknowledge your struggles here, to acknowledge the areas that you're weak and in need of the gospel. And because the Spirit gives us faith to trust God, we are free to proclaim God's sovereignty over our situations. And because the Spirit directs our steps and encourages us, fills us with courage in the will of God, and the Spirit frees us to move forward in faith, we're now free to, to act, to move forward, to ask, what's next, Holy Spirit? What do you want me to do in this situation I'm in right now? Trusting your plan. What plan do you have for me right now? Maybe it's a job thing. Maybe it's your marriage. I don't know what you're going through. But I do know that God has a plan for it. That he's for you in it. That he's with you in it. So I pray that we will all get the mind of God and what he has in store for us and that we would be motivated by trusting his sovereign plan for our lives and move forward to do what he's calling us to. Amen? Let me pray over you. Father, thank you so much for this time to come together and lift our eyes. Yeah, take an honest assessment of our lives and see what's going on, but let's not stay there. Thank you for an opportunity to come and see Jesus Christ in his glorious gospel, to see your love for us, to see your grace for us, God. And I pray that as we come down here and as we take communion and remember the body that was broken for us, the perfect life you lived in the flesh, your righteousness given to us, and remember your blood spilt on the cross and how that purges us and cleanses us from all our sins that we would be so overwhelmed by your grace, that we would be so just excited and motivated by your, your gospel, that we would leave here today with a new lease on life, that we would leave here today walking with you in step with your plan, trusting in you, asking you, Holy Spirit, what's next? In Jesus' name, have your way. Speak to us, we pray. Amen.